You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Well, welcome. Glad you guys are here. Here's a quick story for you as we get going. There's this guy named Ernest Shackleton who decided he was going to be a polar explorer. And this is back in the days of like the golden age of, of world exploration more than 100 years ago. He took out an ad in the New York Times for people who would join him on these expeditions. And here's how the story goes. Here's what he put in the paper. It said this, Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. I love that. I absolutely love that. Here's why. Outside of the cool history and like the golden age of exploration thing, here's what I love about that story. Three things. It's really clear. It's completely counterintuitive. And it's absolutely compelling. It's really clear. Like you know what he's asking for. Bravery. Like he's asking for heart. He's not making any promises, but it's clear. And it's completely counterintuitive. Because that's not how you'd sell an expedition, not how I'd do it. That's not even a sales pitch, if you could call it that. But then at the very end, it's very compelling, isn't it? Like if I saw that on like a Facebook ad or somewhere in Craigslist, I'm like, I'm just going to text this guy because I just want the conversation. Where is he going? What's he doing? Here's something I've been thinking about. Have you ever noticed, though, when we talk about things of faith, we talk about Jesus, we talk about church, that we lead benefits first. Sounds like this. Don't want to go to hell? Come to Jesus. Taking care of. You want a whole bunch of friends that you can like do life with? Come to church. That'll happen. You want your best life now? Come to Jesus. Here's the problem. Um, Jesus hardly ever talks that way. Jesus hardly ever leads benefits first. And while those things might be true, on their own, they represent a very incomplete picture of discipleship. Jesus sounds very different. Jesus is really clear. He's completely counterintuitive. And he's absolutely 100% compelling. So this morning, we're in week two of the seven-week series called What Jesus Said. And if you missed last week, here's the idea. We're doing this series because I've become convinced that what our world needs is not like another slick church or some like great spiritual principles or something to be impressed by. Those things don't work. What works is Jesus and Christ alone. And so our job is to present a very clear picture of who he is, what he said, what he's asking, what he did, and why he matters more than anything else in the world. If we are loud about everything else, but we miss Jesus, we have missed everything. So this morning we're going to be in Matthew chapter 10. And these are some of the hardest things that Jesus is ever going to say. He's talking about discipleship, and he doesn't bury the hard stuff in the fine print. His words are unsettling, even shocking, at least to me. 
And they remind me that while clarity is kindness, clarity is also costly. Jesus is about to shake our foundations, blow apart our preconceptions, and invite us to see our world, our relationships, and even our very lives completely differently. Because we, like this group of cobbled-together 12 ordinary men, we need to understand something, and here it is. You know what something is worth by what you'll give up to keep it. You know what something is worth by what you will give up to keep it. So, Matthew chapter 10 drops us right in the middle of a long teaching section from Jesus. Matthew's gospel actually has five of these teaching sections. They're broken up. Scholars call them the five discourses, five mostly chapter-long sermons, red letters, monologues given by Jesus to his followers. In the case of Matthew 10, Jesus has narrowed his focus exclusively on the twelve. He's just talking to these 12 guys. Now let's pause for a minute and remember who these 12 guys were because I think that's actually going to help us understand the magnitude of what he's about to say to us this morning. What do we know about these 12 followers of Jesus? First, we know that this is a very diverse group. They're very diverse. Andrew was one of the first to be called. He was mending his nets as a fisherman when Jesus called him. There were six of these guys that were fishermen probably. Andrew then ran home to get his older brother, Peter. James and John, two brothers who stood to inherit their father's fishing business, which is something like inheriting the family garage in our culture, like not really glamorous work necessarily, but it's honest work built on a legacy of trust. Then you got Simon, who probably not drawing his income from his political activity, somehow earned the nickname Simon the Zealot, The Greek word means the one who's burning inside. He's against the Roman occupation. He's fired up about governmental overreach, maybe shades of conspiracy theory in there. Contrast Simon with Levi or Matthew, who collected taxes for the Roman government. These guys ever locked horns, you think, in some debate? (laughs) Tax collectors were seen as traitors to their own people. Interesting little aside, by the time Jesus came along on the scene, tax collectors' money was actually viewed as unclean, ceremonially unclean. And so tax collectors would typically overcharge people knowing that they couldn't ask for change back. Unclean coins. So you got these rough blue-collar fishermen, slimy IRS agents, and everything in between. You got Peter, who never doubts a thing, least of all himself. And then you got Thomas, who doubts everything he can't see. And if you saw these guys walking down the road together, following this curious rabbi named Jesus, you know that he's the only reason why these 12 guys are hanging out. Nothing else unifies them. Interesting little sidebar to consider in our world today. Second thing that we know about these guys is they were hand-picked. They were hand-picked. There was never a general call, no local rabbi looking for followers billboard anywhere, no Facebook ad for followership. And I think that's important because if Jesus handpicked these guys, he must have seen something in each of them to warrant a call to all of them. There's something in this group, in this team, that he wants to accomplish. Something about all of them, even that shady guy carrying the cash box. Jesus called him too, don't forget that. 
So they're diverse, they're handpicked, and the last thing, they were devoted. History tells us that apart from Judas, who hung himself, and John, who died of natural causes probably into his 90s, that all the rest of these guys died a martyr's death. Now, that's important for us to think about, especially given our text this morning. If I asked you, what would you be willing to die for? Who would you be willing to die for? Many of us may run to our family, our spouse, our kids, probably first on your mind. Maybe some of us an idea or an ideal. It's what drives those who serve our country to give their lives for freedom and justice, these ideals that we hold clearly. Here's the point, though. After about spending three years with this Jesus, this hand-picked, diverse group had such a transformational experience with him that most of them died for him. This went way beyond, hey, someone thinks we're special. This is a three-year internship around Israel. Hey, we get to do something, leave the fishnets behind, and follow this compelling social guy. Over three years, from fishing boats to dusty roads, crowded squares to storm-tossed seas, Jesus had so changed these guys that they would do anything for him. Last bit of context before we get to Matthew 10. Matthew gives us a glimpse into something a little unexpected before this monologue. Jesus has this beautiful, emotional, vulnerable moment before he preaches this chapter-long sermon. Here's what he says in Matthew 9, verse 35. Here's kind of a little bit of context around the sermon. And Jesus went, all th- or went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. So this is Jesus like on a roll. When he saw the crowds, he had what? Hold on to that word. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So Jesus is about to start something up. We can feel it. He's got the keys in the ignition, and he imagines a world that's like a field ready for harvest, and he says to these guys, hey, pray that the Father would send some people out there. It's you. It's you. Here's what I want us to see. Everything that Jesus is about to say is a commission coming from compassion. He's about to say some very hard things. This is a commission that's coming from compassion. And so let's slide on down to chapter 10, verse 16. Here's what he says. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be as wise as serpents and as innocent as as doves. Okay, this isn't really the pregame pep talk that I was looking forward to, Jesus. Kind of a strange way to pump up your core team. Lambs to the slaughter. Where do I sign up? Let's go. Kind of a sales pitch is this. But then things intensify because he gets specific. Verse 17, he says, beware of men. Why? What's going to happen? Aren't you going to make things okay? Why should I be afraid of them? He says, beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Uh, This is not what we were thinking we were walking into, Jesus. I don't think I like that idea. 
makes me a little uncomfortable. Like, can we just do more of the wedding in Cana kind of stuff? Like, water to wine, people seem to like that little trick. Jesus, can we do that? Can we just make sick people well, like you did? That sounds like a lot of fun. It's pretty powerful. I mean, if you really want some traction for the kingdom, Jesus, suffering may not be the way to do it. Can we just talk about God's heart for his sheep? That's what we're really excited about. I mean, flogged and dragged before courts makes us anxious and a little afraid. I mean, what are we even supposed to say, Jesus? Glad you asked. Verse 19. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it's not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Okay, so at least we're not alone. That's a relief. God's with us. Okay, how bad is this going to get, Jesus? Verse 21. Brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father his child, and the children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Whoa. Death. Really hated? And then now come some of the toughest words, at least in my mind, in the entire Bible. What follows is this series of staccato statements and some of the most jarring words Jesus will ever say. Slide all the way down to verse 34 because he has something else he needs us to hear. Verse 34, he says this, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, that should be more than a little unsettling. Those words should not sit easily on our ear or on our hearts. Why would Jesus talk like this? Three progressively unsettling statements in verses 34 through 39 that I want to focus on. And we're going to talk about why this is so important and why Jesus would ever talk this way. First thing he says, he says, I've not come to bring peace but a sword. You caught that. Did that kind of like make you go, "Eh, what is that? So what, Jesus wants you to hate your mother-in-law? It's not permission. (laughs) Incidentally, my in-laws watch online in Chicago. Hi, Mom. Love you. So we're clear. And then he says, our children. Like, our children? I thought we were supposed to view our children as a gift from God. And here he says, like, I'm supposed to love them less? Like, Deliver What? What is this? So Jesus wants to break apart your family so you can show your loyalty to him. What kind of a megalomaniac is this? What kind of a savior would talk this way? Gentle shepherd, my eye. Is this what Christians are supposed to be? Divisive? Polarizing? Exclusive? Here's the problem, right? At first glance, this seems to go against everything that God is supposed to be about. Right? The Old Testament. Judges 
6.24, Gideon builds an altar and names the altar, the Lord is peace. Isaiah 26.3, you will keep in perfect peace, he whose mind has stayed on you. Psalm 29.11, the Lord blesses his people with peace. The Old Testament God isn't this vengeful, angry God, and the New Testament God is nice and neat and kind. Like, no, this is the same God. He's peaceful in the Old Testament. But then in the New Testament, in the gospel, Jesus' birth was announced as what? Peace on earth. In his ministry, he brings peace. He heals diseases. He calms disasters. He raises the dead as part of his messianic fulfillment. He's called the Prince of Peace. 1 Corinthians 14.33, when Paul says, God is not a God of dissension, but a God of peace. The Christian in Matthew 5.9 is called to be a peacemaker. We're called to live in harmony with each other. Romans 12.16. Peace is even named as a sign that the Holy Spirit is working in your life in Galatians 5. At the end of the age, at the end of all things, what theologians call the eschaton, like when this is all wrapped up, what's it described as? It's a time when the lion will lie down with the Right, the wolf will lie down with the lamb. Right? What a peaceful, beautiful image that is. And so, on the face of things, Jesus' words here present a massive theological problem, don't they? Maybe they didn't, and now you're like, well, I never thought about that, but now I'm a little confused. <laughs> just dissonance with everything I just read. So how are we supposed to reconcile this? First, two quick details. When Jesus talks about the sword here, where he says, I've come, I've come the sword, it's interesting that that sword is not the sword of attack, but the sword of separation. And I say that because when it comes to persecution, when it comes to gospel, especially even, Christians sometimes take the sword of attack. I'm going to get them. We take our vengeful attitudes poor evangelism tactics, and we baptize them in the persecution narrative and call it gospel. Doesn't work like that. Sometimes you're not being persecuted because you're Christian. Sometimes you're being persecuted because you're a jerk. Sorry. That's not what he's talking about here. It's not like I get to go out there and go, all right, all you unbelievers. That's not what he's saying. And I think that's an important thing because secondly, Jesus is not talking about what he values. I'm here to divide families. I don't care the body count. I'm here. No, he's talking about results. He's not saying he delights in division, only that his coming presents a challenge to which different people will necessarily have very strong opinions. You can be ambivalent about a lot of things in the world. You can, I don't care if you're a Ford guy or a Chevy guy. doesn't matter. I don't care who you vote for. It doesn't matter. What it does matter, ultimately, is what you will do with the person of Jesus. All that other stuff is fine. Figure it out on your own. Vote your conscience. Do your thing. But you must have a clear picture of Jesus. You cannot be ambivalent about him. He's either worth everything or he's worth nothing. He's either this quaint, sentimental savior for Sunday mornings at 90 minutes, or he's worth your entire life. And what Jesus says, he goes, in my coming, in my work, in my calling and sending you, I'm going to polarize people because where strong feelings and opposed feelings meet, conflict is inevitable. And now here's where the question moves into the foreground. The question isn't, does Jesus bring peace? Clearly the Bible says that he does. The question is, how? Peace that Jesus will bring is not the absence of tension, 
or the absence of war, at least in the short term. The peace that Jesus brings is not a calm lake on a nice day and a warm cup of tea. The peace that Jesus brings is peace with God that ultimately overflows into peace with man. And that's the peace that polarizes humanity. The suggestion that we are born sinners and rebels in need of an all-sufficient Savior is one of the most offensive ideas you can throw out there. To start off with saying that God created a world that was beautiful and perfect, where we enjoyed complete fellowship with him, and every one of us has screwed it up since. That is a really offensive message. And then, add to that, you don't get to pick whatever God or religion fits your taste of the day to say that it's Christ and Christ alone who will solve that problem. You don't get to count on your good works. You don't get to count on what you do for him. You don't get to pray in anybody else's name but his. And Jesus says, that will cause problems. And I can't pretend like it won't. And so I'm going to be very clear with you at the onset what I am about. You should expect resistance because our world is broken. I am the solution to that, that sin and brokenness. Don't hide it. And this is just me, like, again, sanctified imagination maybe here. But I don't think Jesus is grinning when he's saying this. I think he's grieving. Because he knows that narrow is the gate. Few are those that find this path. Okay, so what's with that take up your cross stuff? Because he said that. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me. Now, we think of crosses as a good thing, right? We got them, like, hanging on our living room walls. Put them on a necklace. Get, like, a tattoo in your arm, right? Crosses are a good thing. But we cannot forget how Jesus' audience would have heard this. Take up your cross. A cross is a Roman torture device, one of the cruelest ways for a person to die. Slaves, criminals, and political rebels were hung on crosses. So there's not only the cruelty associated with a cross, but also this stigma to have a family member die by crucifixion is an ultimate shame. This is inescapably public, personally undignifying, physically torturous. The cross is the Roman exclamation point at the end saying, we are in charge here. And here's Jesus telling his 12 best friends, welcome that. Welcome it. Go pick that thing up and carry it for my name's sake. Really? It's like Jesus telling one of us to strap yourself and do an electric chair. Really? Anybody wearing one of those around your neck? Probably not. Now at this point, like, you got to put yourself in the mind of the disciples because this probably sounds like just theory. They'd seen crucifixion before, obviously not Christ's yet, but Jesus' words here probably seem needlessly alarmist and a little unnecessary. Like, Jesus, like, we know the Pharisees are out to get you, and, like, they don't really like you, but let's not get panicky here. Like, just focus on the positive, right? Glass half full, Jesus, come on. Climb, climb up Sunshine Mountain. Remember that one? But then... He says something else, this penultimate jaw-dropping exclamation point, and he talks about losing our life. And he sets up two kinds of people. He says there's those people who will find their lives. They'll end up losing it. And those people who lose their lives, and they'll end up finding it. So what's with, like, the verbal gymnastics? It sounds like you're playing with verbal paradox here, Jesus. Like, what do you mean? 
And on one level, this is just bad salesmanship. Jesus, that is not how you sell ideas. That is not how to win friends and influence people. You need a Tony Robbins seminar or something. Like, this is not how we do this thing. But then on the other hand, this sounds like a death cult coming from an inflated ego. Why would he say this? So, like, the only people who are worthy of you are the ones who will die for you. Really, Jesus? Why the persecution talk? And for these last two pictures, the cross and a lost life, I want to fast forward 15 years from this. You know what happens to Jesus in the Gospels, and you know why. He dies a horrible death on a cross for the sake of lost humanity to restore our relationship to God. Fast forward 15 years. Peter is writing to a first century church beginning to feel what Jesus promised. And here's what Peter said to them. Tell me if this doesn't sound like he's just picking right up where Jesus left off. Here's what he says, 1 Peter 4, 12. He says, Beloved, this is a pastor writing to a church. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Or as older translations say, think it not strange. This is Peter talking about persecution here, which he alludes to as a fiery trial. What's he talking about? Turns out he's not just talking about poetic language or some clever imagery like, oh, fiery trial. When he says fiery trial, he's using imagery that's incredibly intentional. Here's what happens. First century historian, a guy named Tacitus, and if you've ever read anything by Tacitus, like you know it's as dry as burnt toast in the desert. Here's what Tacitus says, though. Tacitus describes a horrible scene. Emperor Nero, who ruled Rome from 54 to 68 AD, in the early days of the church, the time when Paul was planting churches and Peter was preaching the gospel, Nero, according to Tacitus, had Christians covered in pitch, impaled on poles. And Tacitus tells us that when the daylight had waned, Nero burned them to serve as evening lights in his garden. That is horrifically foreign language for most of us. In the U.S., where for the last 350 years, give or take, the church has enjoyed relative cultural sympathy. And so Peter's words do sound strange. He can say, don't be surprised. The truth is we are surprised. We do think this is strange. Persecution is not normal for the church. And so what Peter wants them to know, and by extension us to know, Adjust your expectations. Where did you ever get the idea that this was easy? Not from the New Testament. It's like Paul told Timothy, same thing, 2 Timothy 3.12. He says, all who would live godly in Christ will suffer. It's a promise. It should humble us. It should sober us and encourage us, actually, that in the book of Acts, Book of Acts, this is the playbook for how to do church, right? This is the journal of the first century church. The first family photo album for our spiritual ancestors, if that helps you. Then in the book of Acts, after Acts chapter 3, only two chapters don't mention persecution. The rest of them talk about persecution, and the church grows. That should tell us that persecution should be the norm, the expected, the promise. We shouldn't be suspicious when we are being persecuted. We should be suspicious when we aren't being persecuted. Now let's go one step further, though, because that's just history stuff. 
And I know in the back of your mind, is the back of my mind, gosh, I'm so thankful we don't live there. Kick it a little further. Jesus promised persecution. Peter prepared for it. And then a few decades later, the writer of Hebrews wrote to a people group who actually lived it. He writes to encourage Christians to hold fast to their faith in a collapsing world where Jesus is becoming quickly persona non grata, where the church is moving to the periphery. Sound like anything you know? (laughs) And the Christians that the writer of Hebrews wrote to are first-generation converts. They're brand new to Jesus, and they're disheartened when they see that their world doesn't line up with the message of Christ and Christ alone. And so trying to cheer them up, this is an encouragement speech here. Here's what he says. This is Hebrews 10, verse 32. He says, Recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, that is, after you were saved, after you know the truth of the gospel, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. What did it look like? Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. Interesting word. You had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plunder of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Did you hear what he said? Joyfully accepted the plunder of your property? What is that? Let's paint the picture. The reigning Caesar orders his thugs to kick open your door, plunder your property, and leave you with nothing, and the result is worship. Are you kidding me? And as crazy as that sounds for most of us who might have our lawyer on the phone before they got out the door, we need to really see why. Why? Joyfully accepted? Really? Joyfully accepting persecution? Why? Let's put this in North Canton 2022. There are not many of us who could walk out of this room this morning and find our windshields smashed. We could go home and find our living rooms turned upside down. Who could see our kids get no playing time on the school team and see ourselves publicly slandered on Facebook and have our hearts immediately ready to be catapulted into worship of Almighty God. We wouldn't do that. It'd be really hard. There's not many Christians that I know who, if our door got kicked in, we would welcome the oppressor, ask them to sit down for coffee, and as they're walking out the front door with an armload of our stuff, would fall to our knees and pray God's blessings over them. That's what these people did. They were persecuted and they worshipped. We're inconvenienced and we want to file a lawsuit. But this is our spiritual family tree. Like these are our great-great-grandparents, covered in pitch, lit on fire, houses ransacked, stuff stolen, But this is wrong, isn't it? This is against the law, right? Shouldn't be this way. Stand up and defend yourself, right? This is my stuff going out the door. This is my rights being taken away. Why in the world would you, number one, let this happen? And then number two, joyfully, joyfully. Mercifully, the writer of Hebrews gives us the reason why, and it's at the tail end of verse 34 joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since, that's the word, since 
you knew that you had a better possession and an abiding one. And that's the key. That phrase, better possession and abiding one. What is that? What's the better possession? Who is the abiding one? Who is it? Jesus and him alone. That's what allows worship to be born of hardship and promise to be born out of pain. We said last week that um, you can learn a lot about a person by how they answer two questions. What's wrong with the world and what's the solution? And for the thinking Christian, the answer must be to the first, I am, my sin. And for the second, Christ alone. And so all of this, this division from a sword, suffering of a cross, even the loss of life, all of this is Jesus asking, what will you do when the time comes? And that's the question for which we must have an answer. If Jesus saved your life, is he worth your life? Persecution is often as powerful as preaching, sometimes more so. Because by welcoming persecution, we are saying with our lives that Jesus is unequivocally worth it, that he's worth it. There will be a time where the church in, I believe, where the church in the United States will face persecution more than we have now. And because we live to make Christ and his kingdom known above all, we will suffer worldly loss for eternal gain. But when it comes, let it come because we are treasuring the better possession and the abiding one. He has never left his church alone. He has never left us without hope in the world. He has never abandoned his people to hopelessness. I don't think he has any plans to do so in the future. He sees you. He's with you. He watches you. He protects you because he cares for you. And he loves you. And so he sought you. And so he bought you. And so he saved you. If he is for you, who can be against you? If he gives you his son, how will he not also Along with him, graciously give us all things. You are his child. You belong to him. You will be with him. And no one will ever change that. Now, come down out of the clouds. What does this mean for us? For North Canton 2022. Jesus' words are hard words. And we have two maybe quite polarizing reactions. Should we live in fear? like stock the basement shelves and start doomsday prepping? Or should we get riled up and take to the internet and blast the bad guys? No. Because characteristically of Jesus, he gives us this third way. Remember where this started. Jesus saw the crowds and he felt compassion. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. When Jesus looked at his world, he felt compassion. He saw people, not problems, individuals, not issues. And out of love for them, he went to a cross and by his death said, they are worth it. When you look at your world, what do you see? Do you see image bearers in need of good news or do you see enemies in need of a good argument? Here's why we've got to ask that question. You will never welcome persecution because you want to win an argument. You will only ever welcome persecution if you want to win lost people for him. 
You know what something is worth by what you will give up to keep it. And so why does Jesus talk this way? Why does he even say this? This horrible language. Why does he talk this way? Why would he bother to raise up 12 men, six fishermen, a tax collector, a political revolutionary? Why would he call them, train them, equip them, and send them only to send them off to die? Here's what I want us to see. In our love for our world and our going to our world, likely facing persecution, in our love for them and our going to them, we mirror God's love for us. Who, out of love for us, came to us and was crucified by us. Jesus saw them. He felt compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Guys, get this. Jesus loved the Peter who denied him. He loved the Thomas who doubted him, and he loved the Judas who betrayed him. Jesus loved the Pilate who washed his hands and rolled his eyes. He loved the soldier who pressed the crown and drove the nails. He loves the people who put him there, you and me. Because out of love for us, he says, they're my people, and I want them back. And so I'll go. I'll go. You know what something is worth? by what you will give up to keep it. How much does Jesus love us? What did he give up? His life. Absolutely everything. How much is one lost sheep worth to Jesus? What did he give to save us? And isn't his everything worth our everything? Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, Please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.